Well, as you know, our time in the Word tonight is Bible Q&A, so uh, uh, we just are going to be jumping around a little bit to a number of passages and uh, trying to address a, a number of topics, the ones that you turned in. And so uh, grab your Bible. We'll plan to do that. We'll jump right in now. And um, we'll begin with the first question. This is one that's not uncommon. And that is, uh, it's not necessarily a Bible question, more of a ministry question. And that is, why is it that we have a uh, policy, policies may be a, uh, too strong of a term, but sort of a practice that we ask people to be here in our church for a while before they jump into the membership class and, and, and become members. Um, this is something we do. We encourage people. In other words, uh, we've got a membership class coming in October, and if uh, people just move here, let's say they move here in two weeks, and they say, oh, this is the church you want to be on. I'm going to jump into the membership class and become members. We say, great, you can do that, but just realize that there's sort of a waiting time. We want to really make sure, and so we usually encourage people not to jump right into the membership class to at least be here for three to six months. And so the question is, is often asked, why? What's the reasoning behind that, the rationale? And th- here is our reasoning. Again, this is not a specifically a text issue. It's more just a ministry experiential issue. Uh, is because, the reason we ask that is because we feel it's really important for people to get to know who we are, what we are as a church before they make that commitment. Because it's very easy for people to assume that they know us and that they're on the same page and that they would agree. Let me just give you an illustration of it that just happened recently. Uh, and this will just illustrate why we have this uh, policy. Uh, some of you may remember just a few weeks ago, uh, preaching through Mark, I came to uh, Mark chapter 12 right at the end. And uh, the two weeks prior that I came to this text, uh, there was a new couple that came here to the church. And uh, both Sundays that they left, they just stopped out at the visitor reception. They said, this, this is the church we've been looking for. Man, this is tremendous. And we just love the music, worship, and the Bible teaching. I mean, they just could not say enough. It's over and over again uh, talking about this is, what, this is it. And so then uh, they came back the next week. And the next week I was just preaching through Mark 12. And then the, the, it, the third week, I believe it was, they were here, uh, was the text where uh, Jesus said in his teaching, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, the best places of feasts, who devour widows' houses. And I just talked about how false teachers, that's what they do. Jesus was warning against false teachers uh, and how they prey on widows, etc., etc. And then I used the example, some of you may remember this, of a Georgia televangelist by the name of Creflo Dollar, uh, who was raising money, said, it, you know, show your faith by helping me. I don't remember the figure now, but like buy a $60 million jet or something like that. And I just talked about how, what an illustration of the very thing Jesus was talking about. Well, this same couple who the previous two weeks had, could not say enough good about our church. As they left that day, they were, they were livid. I mean, they were like, uh, they caught, poor Pastor Dave, they caught Pastor Dave over here at the, you know, the sort of the welcome center. And I mean, it was this. It was just shaking. And we will never come back to this church again. We will never set foot in our feet in this, the, the door of this church. I mean, it was just... All because I mentioned the example of Creflo Dollar. And Dave, to his credit, just said, well, now you know where we stand. You think he's, you know, God's gift to, man, we think he's a false teacher. So that's why 
we tell you that you just need to be around us for a while because you, you might assume in one or two weeks that, oh man, you know, we're on the same page and we agree, etc. And after a few weeks, if you just stay around long enough, you start getting a fuller picture of who we are as a church and what we are and what we believe, etc. And uh, maybe, you, you know, you save yourself some time and energy of, of not going through the membership class because you're going to realize uh, we're not on the same page. So that is why uh, we sort of have that policy. And we recently had a couple, uh, they are now members, but it was just sort of funny because this, this couple is as solid as they come. They moved here from California. They jumped into the membership class immediately. They went through four weeks of the membership class. And they, they, you know, some of us knew them, kind of knew them as distance from a distance. It was sort of like, but, you know, you're not members yet. Just so you understand that, we can't make the exception for you. And they were so gracious about it. They understood. Now they are because time has elapsed. But they were wondering, why would you have this gap and et cetera? And when we explained, they totally understood it. But that's the answer behind it. That's why that's our policy. Because uh, more than once, many times, we have people come to our church who, with initial exposure, they think, oh, this is the church. You know, this is it. I want to... And after they hear a few weeks, uh, you know, they, they hate us. They can't stand us. They totally disagree. And it's like, well, let's just save all of us some headache and just hang around a little while. And then if you still think we're on the same page, jump in and join us. All right? So that's the answer to that question. Next question is actually on a text. It's 1 Samuel chapter 28. So let's go back into Hebrew scripture. 1 Samuel chapter 28. And... Uh, the question is on verses 7 through 18. Now, you may or may not be familiar with this story. Do you remember King Saul had banished all the witches, all the spiritists out of the land of Israel, but there were still some there, but they had to just operate, you know, on the QT and sort of uh, uh, behind the scenes, etc. So Saul, he wants to find out some information that God's not telling him, so he decides he is going to consult a medium or a witch, etc., so he disguises himself, verse 8 tells us, uh, he disguises himself, put on other clothes, and he went and two men with him, and they came to the woman by night, this medium that he was informed of back in verse 7. He had said, find me a woman who is a medium that I may go to her and inquire of her. So they found her uh, at Endor. And so Saul goes to her, and then verse 9, then the woman said to him, look, you know, that Saul, you know what Saul has done, how he's cut off the mediums and the spiritists from the lamp. Why do you lay a snare for my life to cause me to die? And Saul swore to her by the Lord, saying, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? Because Saul wanted someone brought up from the dead, information, etc. And so, who do you want me to bring? In verse 8, uh, or verse 11, And he said, Bring up Samuel for me. Now understand something. This is not something she could do. Alright? You can't Unless a demon allows it, either impersonates it or allows it, you can't just bring people up from the dead, all right? Now, this witch knew that, but she obviously could use uh, her craft with demons to fool people. And how do people know? You know, if you say, you know, bring Ronald Reagan from the dead and the demon impersonates and starts talking, how, who, how would anyone know? So if you're good enough at it and you have demon contacts, you could pull the wool over anyone's eyes. But what happened on this occasion was, an event that was, it is so unique, it's never mentioned any, I mean, this kind of thing is never mentioned anywhere else in Scripture because he wants to talk to Samuel. And then, verse 12, when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. Why? She's shocked that it worked. It never really worked for her before. 
Now, maybe again, demons impersonating, but it's like, what happened here? Samuel actually came. And the woman spoke to Saul, saying, Why have you deceived me? For you are Saul. She realized this has to be King Saul. And the king said to her, Do not be afraid. What did you see? And then she tells the, you know, the story, etc. And God, of course, allowed this to deliver a message to Saul about God's judgment on Saul for his disobedience. So the question is this. It's one that's commonly asked. It says this, 1 Samuel 28, 7-18, Was this Samuel coming back to speak to Saul or an evil spirit? And I think the way the text reads, it was Samuel. If it had been a spirit coming back to impersonate uh, Samuel, then the lady wouldn't have been so shocked. This was Samuel. The text says it was Samuel. I believe it was Samuel. And this was a, a unique situation that God allowed for Samuel to, to uh, um, deliver this message to Saul about God's impending judgment. So it's my view, my opinion, that this was actually Samuel who... Uh, uh, whom God used to deliver this message to King Saul. All right, next question says this. Um, uh, I've heard a lot of talk, both on talk radio and people around the valley, talking about the Shemitah and the seven-year cycle. And September of this year is supposed to have something big happen. By the way, related to this is four blood moons. Maybe you've heard that. There are four blood moons in this calendar year, etc. And a lot of people are getting a lot of traction on this, getting a lot of press. Um, is there any biblical basis for Christians or other nations to follow this, or was this something meant for the Jewish people? They claim that history proves that it is still in effect. Is this just something to distract us as we run the race, or does it have merit? I know this is a, th- there are a lot of questions here, and my question, I just uh, am wrestling with what to say about this to others. Well, I'm glad you asked, because I get asked about this on a regular basis, usually it's via email. I get a lot of emails. I often wonder how people get my email address. I get these emails out of nowhere. Is there a way you can get someone's email address without them giving it to you? There is. Okay, well, thank you. That answers my question. I get these emails. How did you get my email address? So, and I get all these emails about this very issue. I, I get, get, I've been getting them for months. Now, in case you're not familiar with what it is, uh, there is a, a lot of people are talking about this, but there's one a guy in particular who's very popular. Uh, he's a Messianic Jewish pastor slash rabbi. His name is Jonathan Kahn, C-A-H-N. I don't really know a lot about him. He could be a genuine believer, a Jewish Messianic, that is someone uh, who would be Jewish but believe Jesus is the Messiah. Now, one of the problems, just as a little side note here, is that many Je- Messianic Jews do not have... Now, they, they could be genuine believers in Jesus, not questioning their salvation, they believe Jesus was the Messiah. They've embraced him as Lord and Savior. They could be genuine believers, but they have a lot of confusion in their minds as to how the Old Testament law relates to the New Testament believer. Just a lot of confusion on that. Uh, so anyway, this, is, this guy, Jonathan Kahn, is a um, Messianic Jew, so a Jewish person who believes Jesus was the Messiah. Uh, he actually wrote a book, I think it was back in 2012, called The Harbinger. Harbinger, Harbinger, something like that. Very popular book. Someone asked me to read it a while back, so I I read it. And it is basically um, trying to use God's warnings in Isaiah, saying that they were not merely warnings to Israel, but they're warnings to America. And he tries to tie it in with 9-11 and what that happened. And uh, it's an extremely popular book and an extreme example of terrible hermeneutics. 
I mean, terrible hermeneutics. It is allegorizing. I mean, it is just, and yet Christians are buying this book and are, are just buying into this. Well, he's also written one on Shemitah. It's sort of a follow-up. And uh, tying in with the four blood moons and saying, because this is so rare, every time in Israel's history there was a blood moon, something really huge happened. And since there are four of them in this calendar year, uh, this is it. September is the month where something really big is going to happen. Now, here's, a, here's just a few facts. One, um, it is a fact that some of these blood moons, maybe all of them, I'm not sure, but I know at least some of them can't even be seen from Israel. I mean, that'll just put the nail in the coffin on this thing uh, right from the get-go. Because if these are warnings to Israel, and you can't even see the blood moons in Israel, what kind of warning is that to Israel? So just from a, uh, an astronomy point of view, it's, 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 it's nonsense. It's silly. But uh, a lot of Christians are being pulled into this. And as a result, I've pulled together some, some articles that I've sent out to all the people that email me about Here's some things on the blood moons, etc. So all that to just say this, and answer your question. There is, there is nothing to this, all right? Now, could something big happen here in September? Sure. Something good, big could happen here in September to Israel or here in America. But if it does, it is in no way connected to Shemitah, okay? Just like something big could happen in October or November, there could be some another, another major event in history or some major catastrophe or maybe our country gets attacked again very successfully. Well, if that happens, it's not related to any of this stuff, okay? It's not. All of that is, is just, again, like I say, the biggest problem with all of this, when I read the, the first book by Jonathan Kahn, and now his second book on Shemitah, uses the same terrible hermeneutics throughout it to try to support this. And basically what it uses is a very common Error in hermeneutics. Now, hermeneutics, by the way, is just the technical term for principles of Bible interpretation. Uh, the most common error in his two books is the tendency to allegorize Scripture. Now, what is allegorizing Scripture? Well, allegorizing Scripture is, rather than taking Scripture as it is supposed to be taken, such as historically, literally, grammatically, you find hidden meaning, secret meaning in the text. So that's allegorizing. And by the way, allegorizing has been popular throughout church history. Uh, people just, rather than taking the plain sense of the Bible, there is this tendency of people to think this is a mystical book. Beloved, this is not a mystical book. It's a spiritual book, but it's not a mystical book. And there's a huge difference. Spiritual book just means that it was written by the Spirit of God and it has lessons for our spiritual lives, etc. But it's not mystical. There's not some secret hidden meaning. You know, you don't like the book I read a few years ago. Someone gave me the Bible code where you put computer, computer code, the Bible through computer codes and every third word in the Bible has a special message where you take the first letter from every seventh word in the Bible and you form words and all of these gymnastics to try to find secret meaning, hidden meaning. That is terrible to do that to Scripture. It's not the way Scripture is, is, should be taken. You see the way Jesus and the apostles uh, took Scripture Historically, literally, grammatically, those are the types of principles. But this Jonathan Kahn, who has written on the first book about 9-11 and how God warned through the prophet Isaiah that that was going to happen, which is nonsense, by the way. God did not warn through the prophet Isaiah that 9-11 was going to happen in America. And uh, now his second book on this Shemitah, Four Blood Moons, it's, it's all completely inaccurate. 
But the, the main thing he does with Scripture is he allegorizes it. He takes it and makes it mean what it's not meaning. Tries to make it say what it's not saying. Let me just give you an illustration of allegorizing. Uh, here's an example. Uh, the following is an example of allegorical interpretation. In the Epistle of Barnabas, written in the second century, the author suggests, now listen to this closely, the author suggests that the mention of Genesis 14 of Abraham's having 318 servants should be interpreted according to its numerical value. I'm sure you've heard people do this kind of thing with the Bible. They say you, the, the fact that it mentions Abraham had 318 servants, there's nothing spiritual about that. We've got to make that spiritual. So let's interpret it according to its numerical value. So the numerical value of the three numbers, 318, can be represented by the Greek letters tau, iota, and eta. The author of this epistle says that the tau looks like this in Greek, okay? The tau obviously represents the cross. And the iota and the eta are the first two letters in the Greek spelling of the name of Jesus, which is true. Iota, eta, Jesus, Jesus. Therefore, he suggests, now listen to this. Therefore, he suggests that the real meaning of Genesis 14 where it says Abraham had 318 servants, the real meaning of that text is that Jesus will die on the cross. Now, a lot of Christians hear that and they say, wow, that is really spiritual. I could have never gotten that out of that passage. You know why? It's not in that passage, okay? The fact that Abraham had 318 servants has absolutely nothing to do with Jesus dying on the cross. But how do you argue against someone who says, this is about Jesus dying on the cross. If you argue with them, you sound like you're against the cross. You're not against the cross. What you're against is allegorizing the Bible to try to make it say what it's not saying. And that is what is done in both of those books and in this whole area of the Shemitah and the blood moons and all that. They'll go back to passages, mostly in the Old Testament, rip them out of their historical context, rip them out of their their literary context, and they start making predictions and prophecies about America. And Christians who are worried about America just thrive on this stuff. Oh, man, we're going, you know, we're just, uh, we're going down the drain as a nation, and God's trying to warn us through, this, through these passages, and those passages have nothing to do with it. So it's just a, it's a, an abuse of Scripture, a misuse of Scripture. And understand this, beloved, this is exactly what the cults do to teach error. The cults allegorize Scripture to teach error. For example, maybe you've heard this one uh, from Mormon theology. Uh, there's a place, one of the prophets says, God says to one of the prophets, take two sticks and join them together. And that's exactly what the prophet does, and they become one. Well, if you're familiar with Mormon theology, you will know that the Mormons say what that is predicting is that the Bible and the Book of Mormon together form one, the Word of God. Now that's how the Mormon church defends their adding the Book of Mormon to the, to the same plane as Scripture. Now when you and I as Christians hear that, we say, oh, that's nonsense. That's not, because if you read the context, God says, take two sticks, write on one Israel, the other Judah, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, and put them together because one day I am going to make Israel and Judah one united kingdom again. Okay? So when we read that, we say that's your butchering scripture, you're allegorizing scripture to say that, that uh, it, it's, it's a picture of the Bible and the Book of Mormon coming together. Listen, you're right. 
you're right in saying that's nonsense. It's not what it's talking about in the context. But listen, Christians do the same thing with the Bible. It's just that they do that and teach truth. And nobody cries foul when a Christian takes verses out of context and makes it say, this is about Jesus dying on the cross. Nobody wants to say anything about that because how are you going to argue with Jesus dying on the cross? So understand this. We have no right to criticize the cults for allegorizing the Bible to teach error if we allegorize the Bible to teach truth. Do you understand that? We have no right to criticize the cults if we're using the same methodology they're using. If we're twisting verses, giving them secret, hidden meaning that they don't have just to teach good things. You can't do that with Scripture. It's the wrong way to deal with Scripture, which is why Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed. Listen, if you do that to the Bible, you ought to be ashamed. If you do that with God's Word, you ought to be ashamed. To twist it that way, allegorize it, Look for some secret hidden meaning under, uh, underlying what it's saying in plain words. So Paul said to Timothy, listen, you need to be a worker who does not need to be ashamed handling accurately the word of truth, rightly dividing the word of truth, not playing fast and loose with Scripture. So it's a long answer to that question, but I get so many questions on it that uh, you need to understand that the underlying problem with it is the hermeneutics used, and it's allegorizing Scripture, twisting Scripture, and it sounds so good, especially, as I said, to Christians who are worried about America going down the drain, that they just grab it and, and just relish it, and it's not accurate biblically. All right, next question says this. Uh, why did the Israelites, or where, I'm sorry, where did the Israelites get all the wood for building the tabernacle? Exodus 26.16 calls for boards almost 30 inches wide. Do acacia trees even grow that big? And was the wilderness more of a forest back then, or were they hauling three feet diameter logs around the whole way from Egypt? Well, the simple answer to that question, I don't know about acacia trees, I mean, if they grow that big or not, but I do know this. It is very clear, both in history, extra-biblical history, and in Scripture, that the land of Israel used to be extremely forested, heavily forested. In fact, if you ever wondered about the story, some of you have been to Israel, and you go there now, and you say, wow, they're fighting over this? I mean, it's just sand, sand and rocks and desert. Uh, but uh, you, you know the stories of the Bible. What happened, uh, you remember the story, David, when uh, he's going to fight, and he's going to fight Goliath, and he says, I don't need this armor because your servant has killed both what? Bear and lion. Bears. There were bears in Israel. Today, there is one place in Israel that's way down south. It's a sort of a, it's a fascinating game preserve where the modern state of Israel is reintroducing ones that aren't extinct, all the animals of the Bible back in. And you can go, uh, this last group I took, we, we didn't have time to go to this, and not every group I've taken have we been able to go to this. But some of the groups have been to this place, and you go in and they have, if there's an animal mentioned in the Bible and they can find it, they bring it in, and it's, it's in a high-fenced area, but they're all uh, loose and free, etc. Um, so the modern state of Israel is, is, is trying to bring not free roaming, but animals of the Bible back into that setting. Uh, but there aren't bears in Israel today. There aren't really lions in Israel today. 
Uh, there are a lot of animals that aren't there because what has happened, if you look back historically, uh, just the, the history of that land, it has just been pillaged. I mean, it has been every army. You know, if you, if you know where the land of Israel is located, uh, it's located right sort of on the, it's sort of right on the crossroads between uh, Europe and Asia, I mean, and Africa, and, and, and it's the crossroads. And every army that marched through there, guess what they did? They cut down trees. And they used them for battering rams and for fires and for everything else. So when the modern state of Israel was founded in 1948, one of the things they decided to do, and they've done a great job of it, is that they're planting trees. They're planting trees galore throughout the nation. And it's a huge thing to the Jewish people to, to uh, reforest their land. Uh, but today, you, if you've been to Israel, you look at it and you say, how could they do this kind of thing? How could they you know, get boards like this for building the tabernacle. Well, in ancient times, the land of Israel was, was heavily forested, not so today, though better today than 50 years ago or 100 years ago, etc. But it used to be very heavily forested. All right, next question says this. Uh, let's turn to 2 Timothy 2.20. Second Timothy 2.20, Paul is writing to Timothy here, and he's using an analogy um, of how Timothy could be most effective in his ministry, etc. And he says to him, but in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. And the illustration that Paul seems to be using is this, verse 21, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, that is the vessels of dishonor, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Now, there are two ways you can take this analogy. I'll tell you the one I hold to. But, but uh, one way is that Paul is looking at the house as just humanity as a whole. So believer and unbeliever. And so he is saying, you know, in a, in a house there are vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor. And so in the world today there are vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor. I don't think that's really Paul's analogy here. I think the house here is the household of God. And what he's saying is, in the family of God, there are believers who live their lives in such a way that they are vessels of honor, sanctified and useful to the master. And there are others that don't live their lives maybe the way they, want, they ought to or the way the Lord would want them to, so they're, they're, they're uh, wood, clay, etc. All right, so if you think that's what Paul is saying, which I do, and it's obvious from this question, that this is uh, the, the take that this person has. In light of that, here's the question. Can 2 Timothy 2.20 be used to argue that not all believers have to produce fruit? Now, you may be wondering what's behind this question, and I, I think I know, but I, uh, I'm not certain because the person doesn't, um, doesn't go on and delineate. But there is quite a debate within theology today and this debate has been going on for probably 25 years now. Uh, and it's called the Lordship Salvation Debate, which is a terrible title for one thing because it implies that if you hold to that view, you hold to some view of salvation that's different than the Bible's because it's Lordship Salvation, not Biblical Salvation. But be that as it may, it's, that's what it's called, the Lordship Salvation, uh, Lordship Salvation Debate. And what Christians wrestle with and theologians wrestle with and Bible teachers is... Uh, the whole issue of, uh, and there are a number of issues. What is the nature of genuine saving faith is really at the core. 
But some of the other issues are, is repentance necessary for salvation? Uh, is fruit a, a necessary reality to prove salvation? So some of the passages that are often debated in the Lordship Salvation debate would be like the James 2 passage. James 2.14, what does it profit, my brethren? If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? And so there are a lot of issues. There are a lot of issues in the Lordship Salvation debate, and I don't want to um, do injustice to it by saying I can summarize it here in, you know, five minutes. But one of the issues is, in the Lordship Salvation debate, is it possible for someone to be a believer and not produce fruit? Or to say it another way, is it certain that someone who is a true believer will produce fruit in his or her life? Uh, that's one of the issues. Well, I, I think that's behind what this person is asking. So let me read the question again and comment. Can 2 Timothy 2.20 be used to argue that not all believers have to produce fruit? So, in other words, it's, the question seems to be saying, someone probably in the non-lordship camp is saying, listen, it is not true biblically. The Bible doesn't say all true believers will produce fruit. Because here's an example. In, 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 in 2 Timothy 2.20, Paul admits here that in the house of God, there are vessels of gold and silver, but some of wood and clay. That is, there are believers who produce fruit, and there are believers who don't produce fruit. So, this person is asking, can this be used to argue that not all believers have to produce fruit? And the answer to the question is no. You can't. It's not a valid use of this verse. And let me explain why. Because what Paul is talking about here is, is he is describing, he is not talking about in a person's entire life. He is just saying in a, in a large house there are vessels of gold and silver and there are some of wood and clay, some for honor and some dishonor. So what he's saying is in the household of God, in the family of God, there are some who live honorably and there are others who live dishonorably. Some who live the way they ought to live and some who don't live the way they ought to live as Christians. But he's not talking, he's talking about at a given time, this is the case, and this is always the case, is it not? I mean, always, this is the case, that in, in any t point in time, you could say, there are Christians on planet Earth right now, or in a church, in our church, there are some Christians who are living the way they ought to be living, and some who are not living the way they ought to be living. And I don't know anyone that would debate that, uh, because uh, it's why the New Testament was written. Listen, beloved. If every Christian always lived the way he ought to live, we don't need the New Testament. Because the New Testament continually says things like Colossians 3, do not lie to one another. Is it possible for a Christian to lie? Sure it is. If it's not possible, you don't need a verse that says do not lie. Right? Uh, so Romans 13, 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. Is it possible for a true Christian to make provision for the flesh and fulfill its lust? Sure. Because if not, Paul doesn't need to write that. And you can just go down through all these commands which say things like, you know, uh, you know uh, flee sexual immorality, 1 Corinthians 6.18. Is it possible for a true Christian to commit sexual immorality? Sure it is. If not, you don't need to write that. So Paul and Peter and James, they didn't write a bunch of stuff that's completely unnecessary. They know that Christians can do those things. So at any given time, there are believers that are living the way they ought to be and not living, some that are not living the way they ought to be. But it still does not change the fact that Scripture says 
Now, when Scripture looks at a person's life, it looks at the person's entire life, that a person who's a true believer will be transformed, and there will be fruit from that. It doesn't say that it will be perfect, it will be unending, that there'll never be lapses, that they'll never fail. It's just that Scripture does indicate that when Christ comes into a life, He changes the life. But the fact that Jesus changes our lives doesn't mean that because He changed my life at salvation, I'll never fail. That'd be nice if we never did, but we all have the potential to fail. So no, you can't use this verse to say, see, this verse is proving that a true believer can live his entire life and have no fruit. That would completely miss the point of the passage and stretch the verse way beyond its meaning. So in answer to your question, if I think, if I understand what I think you're asking, can this verse be used to argue that not all believers have to produce fruit? No, it doesn't enter into the lordship debate in that sense because this does not prove that it's possible to be a true believer and never have any fruit in your life. It doesn't prove that at all. All right, next question says this. Um, uh, why does God repeat the same verses or information within the same chapter or near chapter in Hebrew Scripture? In other words, what, what he's asking here is this. And you know this if you read through Hebrew Scripture, the Old Testament. There will be sometimes like uh, in Proverbs where there will be a proverb stated and like five verses later the exact same proverb is stated again. So why would God say the same thing? Or sometimes in the law, Mosaic law, there will be a law given and in the next chapter it's stated again, same thing. But the verses around it are not the same, but maybe all of a sudden here it comes again. So the question is why would God just repeat the same verses or information within the same chapter? Uh, and then it goes on to say, if you're going through the Bible in, in audio, in other words, if you're listening to it, if you're reading it, you might not catch it, but if you're going through an audio, this really stands out because you'll be listening and all of a sudden it's like, oh, I, didn't I just hear that? You back up the, yeah, they just, it just said that, you know, a minute ago. Now it's saying the same thing. Why? Uh, I, can't, I can't say why because I don't know chapter and verse that would tell us exactly why other than uh, what we can uh, what we can conclude from knowing what God says, especially about his people Israel. Now, I'm saying this. Those of you who know me know this is the case. There's, I'm not saying this in any type of uh, anti-Semitic way. You, those who know me know how much I love the Jewish people. There's not an anti-Semitic bone in my body. Um, but I'm just telling you what God says or what the prophets of Israel say about the Jewish people themselves. So this is what they say. They say they are stubborn, stiff-necked people, uh, uncircumcised in heart, uncircumcised in ears. You don't hear. You don't listen. I mean, that's what the Jewish prophets have said about their own people. So in light of that, maybe the answer is, this, is, is that it makes sense that God, knowing his people Israel, how stubborn, how, how much they refuse to listen, he's going to repeat it and say it and say it and say it to try to get through to them and to make sure that they hear it. It's just a sort of an educated guess on my part because I don't know of chapter and verse that would say this is why he would repeat it. But this person is right. If you read Hebrew Scripture, you'll see this in the law section, sometimes in Proverbs. Uh, if God just said it, why does he need to say it again? Well, to make sure they get it. It's that, that simple. All right, last question uh, of the night says this. Can we be perfect in this life? And when you first hear that, you might think, well, this is a simple question to answer, but it's not a simple question to answer. And let me explain why. It's because in our English Bibles, uh, when you see the word perfect, don't assume that it is synonymous with 
Uh, in other words, there's a Greek word behind that. Now I'm thinking primarily of the New Testament here. Uh, so when you're reading the New Testament and you see the word perfect in English, don't assume that the Greek word behind that means what you're thinking it means, i.e. sinless perfection. Because the Greek word perfect can be used in a variety of ways. Uh, the Greek word perfect, for us, the word perfect is pretty narrow in meaning, pretty slim. Perfect just means perfect. Uh, but the Greek word can have at least three means. You say, now hold on. How can a word have three means? Well, let me illustrate this to you. Let me ask you this question. Let's say you have a foreign exchange student come to live with you from Germany, and they come up to you and say, what does the word bank mean? What are you going to say? You're going to say, well, t tell me how you heard the word used, and I can answer the question for you. I can't tell you what the word bank means. It's a place where you stand when you fish. It's a place you deposit money. It's a kind of shot in basketball. What does the word bank mean? Well, you can't say what the word bank means. It has a range of meaning, and how it's used in a given context determines its meaning. In this, it's the exact same way with the Greek word perfect. The Greek word perfect can mean perfect, i.e., the way we use the word in English, sinless perfection. So in that sense, can we be perfect in this life? That sense, no. No, we can't. Because Paul, maybe the greatest Christian to ever live, you know, who will deliver me from this body of death? I, I long for the day when the, the Lord descends from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ rise first, and we are alive and remain, are caught up together within the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And Paul longed for the day when finally he would no longer be weighed down by sin and he would be perfect. And uh, the passage we looked at this morning in Philippians 3, I've not attained, I've I, I not, but I'm going to press on. So, can we be perfect in this life? Not sinless perfection. 1 John 1, 8, if anyone says that he has no sin, he deceives himself, he's a liar, he makes God a liar. But the Greek word perfect is also used to refer to maturity. Uh, to, to maturity would be maybe the best English word. So, so can we be perfect in that sense? Yes, we should grow to maturity. Ephesians 4 says the goal is that we would no longer be children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, but rather that we would, we would reach maturity. So maturity means discernment. It means depth. It means uh, it, it, it could, perfect can be used that way. Or the, the Greek word perfect can also be used to refer to fulfillment. In other words, something that has accomplished its intended purpose. Then it's perfected, that it has accomplished it. So can we be perfect in this life? Not sinlessly perfect, but certainly we can be mature, discerning, and we're supposed to be that way. And there are times when things, uh, the writer of Hebrews, some scholars believe, uses the word perfect in the way that, okay, the law was intended to bring us to perfection, i.e. to salvation. So in that sense, it fulfilled its purpose, and therefore it is perfect. So that's another way the term can be used. So all that to say to your question, not sinlessly perfect, but mature, developed, who, who we ought to be in our development in Christ. Yes, that kind of perfection we can be. Uh, but there's even a third way the term is used sometimes that's not necessarily related to how we are, but just other, other things. So great questions. Thanks for turning those in. Let's stand. We'll close in prayer tonight. Father, thanks for our time together this Lord's Day. What a, 
What a great morning we had just uh, focusing on that passage in Philippians 3 about striving for, a reaching for, pressing toward the goal of the upward call of God in Christ. And Father, though we realize that in this life we will never, never reach sinless perfection, uh, we, we should not allow that to anyway rob us of the drive and the passion and the pursuit to keep moving forward, knowing that one day we will achieve by your grace, you will accomplish in us that that we have been uh, moving toward here in this life. So thank you for that promise and that assurance. It keeps us encouraged and keeps us motivated. And may that be the case this week in our lives and in our walk with Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.